Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist, with me, your host, Chloe Timms. In this episode, I'm talking to Colleen Hubbard about her literary novel, Housebreaking. Colleen is a native of New England, but now lives in London with her family. She graduated from the UEA MA programme in Creative Writing, where she earned the Head of School Prize with a distinction. In this episode, we discuss instinctive editing choices, why she used third-person perspective to leave space for dark humour, and giving herself deadlines to pursue her dreams. But before we get into that, here's Colleen with an excerpt from Housebreaking. She went to the stop-and-go in the dead of night to get more fruit roll-ups and to commit a crime. Again, she took the back way, across the disused farmland, the empty paddocks, the haunted wheezing barns with no doors, through the new developments and their silent, creepy cul-de-sacs. By now, she had learned the direct path. It was nearly 2 a.m. when she walked past a raccoon pulling garbage from a trash can outside the motion-sensing doors of the supermarket. Inside, the cashier was slumped over with his head resting on his arm. His deep, rattling cough vibrated through his back. She said hi as she passed him. It was the same guy who had always seemed to be working. He was probably a few years younger than she was. Dell picked up a basket and dropped her groceries inside. Raspberry roll-ups, mo- more oatmeal and coffee, pinto beans, rice, a brick of cheap chocolate. The lobster tank was fired up and bubbling. Lobsters stood on the back of other lobsters and stretched their claws toward the water level of the tank. She wondered if it was a coordinated effort that had been agreed on in advance by whatever way lobsters communicated, or if the lobsters on the bottom of the pile feared being left behind. An orange sticker shaped like an explosion advertised buy one lobster, get one 25% off for Christmas. Had Christmas passed already, or was it still to come? She had forgotten to mark her calendar since she got back from the tree farm with Tim. In the refrigerated case next to the lobsters were platters of cold-boiled shrimp, curled around a pool of sauce in their pink suits, like swimmers in an Esther Williams movie. Holiday party time. Strands of lights. Punch bowls of sherbet and bourbon-soaked cherries. Four people on a couch meant for three, waiting for the sound of a doorbell. She wondered if Tim would be going to their usual place, an old Irish bar that opened at noon on Christmas Day. Was Dave flying in from Los Angeles as usual? That it? the cashier asked. Yeah. We're closed Christmas and New Year's Day, just so you know. Cool. Thanks, she said. 
Hi, Colleen. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I'm really looking forward to discussing your debut novel, Housebreaking. Hello, Chloe. I'm very excited to be here with you. So can you start us off by describing what Housebreaking is about? Housebreaking is about a woman who finds herself sort of pushed to the edge. She is, her name is Dell. she's 24 years old. Um, and at the very beginning of the book, she is fired from a job that she doesn't want. Um, but she's also pushed out of her home. She is renting an apartment um, with a friend and he tells her that uh, she can't have her room anymore. So she has to go back to her hometown, which is a place she has tried desperately to avoid and left when she was 17 years old. She has to go back there and deal with some family secrets um, and see some relatives that she would rather not see. Yeah, and we definitely get that kind of small town vibe. And we'll talk about that a little bit later about how you kind of built this community and this town. But I want to talk first about your inspiration for this novel. And I noticed that in the back of your book, there was like a behind the scenes section, which I really loved because you don't get that on many books. And I mean, I love speaking to authors about how they got their ideas, but you don't often get to see that in the book as well. And I love that that was included in yours. Um, so for the benefit of the podcast, can you describe your early inspiration? And I know it had something to do with Shakespeare. Yes, yeah, so I, um, we sold the flat that we were living in and we were moving to a new flat um, and we had a few weeks where we had no place to stay and a friend let us stay with him. That's my friend Keith. And I noticed a book on Keith's bookshelf that I grabbed and read during that period. And it was um, a sort of a pop history of Shakespeare by Bill Bryson. Uh, and it described Shakespeare's troupe moving their theater, the physical building of the theater across the frozen Thames, which I thought was such a striking image of moving an entire building, pushing it over ice. Um, and that probably isn't entirely true. That probably didn't quite happen, but I just became obsessed with this idea of moving a building, physically moving a building. Um, sometimes still in the United States, you can see uh, particularly simple houses being put on the flatbed of a truck and moved. That happens sometimes with historic buildings um, or buildings that people want just in different places. You might drive down the highway and see an actual house in the back of a truck, um, but I wanted to look at a, an individual person actually moving a house. I found that idea fascinating. And so I wrote a book about it. So what do you think that, what do you think it is that drives Dell then? Um, I want to speak a little bit about her personality because she's very strong-willed and she can be quite abrasive with others, quite spiky. So what is it that drives her to, to, to uh, do this grand feat then of dismantling this house and moving it? Dell, so Dell's family are um, farmers, basically living on a lot of farmland that her grandparents owned and managed. And when her grandparents died, they left the farmland to her uncle and they left the farmhouse to her mother. So the farmhouse is sort of um, small, rotten, falling apart. And the farmland ended up being in an area that was massively developed. And so the uncle became very wealthy and the mother stayed um, sort of working class, New England poor. So there's a lot of resentment, I think, that she has about this difference in the family fortunes. And then the uncle is also an asshole. He just isn't very um, um, understanding or pleasant about how his the, the turns that his life has taken. He attributes everything to his hard work and nothing at all 
to luck on either end. And for Adele, um, she has seen a lot of people in life suffer and suffer through no fault of their own. And she just doesn't see the world as this sort of um, simple math equation of you put in um, these um, figures on one side and it pops to the other side of the equation as this set of figures. So she, for her, it's just life is a little bit more complicated, a little bit less black and white. And she has a, a real resentment against this man who she feels judges her and judges her family. And so um, she decides ultimately to dismantle the family house because she knows or thinks that it will piss him off and also she finds that the house which her parents who have both died uh lived in she she has an emotional attachment to that house and to their things that she didn't expect to have mm, it starts as a her doing something as an act of uh, defiance and then it moves towards something else and a, and a shift in dell i was wondering how you feel about her because as, as i said she's quite difficult as a person quite abrasive but I think ultimately as a reader you especially particularly when she's up against um her uncle and the Morrow family you do side with her and you do see her perspective because actually to to have her life uprooted like that to be told to move out of her apartment where she's kind of barely happy living there is is a hard thing to have to deal with so how did how did you feel about her as a character and did you enjoy kind of writing her spikiness i really liked Elle, and i i i feel a bit strangely protective of her considering that she is an imaginary person but there are some people who really really don't like her as a character don't find her sympathetic um you know i th i think a curious thing uh, something happens at the very beginning of the book the first chapter where she is fired from her job and it's for her she gets fired from a cleaning job because of doing something that's a bit stupid. And I wonder if there are some readers who read that scene and because of their life history, they find it very easy to sympathize with the owner of the house. And that's a natural sympathy that they have. And for some other readers, they find it very natural to sympathize with the house cleaner. And I think as a person um, and with my own, my own history, um, I find it easier to sympathize with the cleaner of the house and the owner of the house. And so I, I do have a natural sympathy with her, even though I would not make the same choices that she makes and finds I find some of her behavior and her stubbornness really frustrating, but I ultimately do root for her. Mm. I think for me, one of the themes that came across through a lot of the book was this idea of um, communication or lack of and how people don't really say what they want to say and I I felt that particularly with her relationship with Tim and and I have to say Tim was probably one of my favorite characters and I loved their uh, their friendship and particularly the scene when they're selling Christmas trees I really enjoyed um, and I I feel like there's a well there's a scene between them where Tim finally says the unsayable basically mm -hmm. uh, did you approach the novel with kind of an idea in your head of things that you wanted to say, particular themes? Did you did you approach it thinking, I want to explore this particular theme or did that come kind of through the writing process? I think more of it came through the writing process for me. So I lived in San Francisco for 10 years before I moved to the UK. And many of my friends, maybe most of my friends are gay. I'm straight, um, but I have 
many, many, many mostly gay male friends, and many of whom are quite a bit older than I am. Um, so Tim as a character is a gay man who is in his mid 50s while Dell is 24. Um, but they have this great sort of um, buddy comedy feel to them. Um, one of the big sort of backstories of the book is about the AIDS crisis because the book takes place in the 90s. Um, Tim and many of his other friends um, who are also Dell's friends are affected by AIDS. Um, when I sat down to write the book, I wasn't thinking I'm going to write a book where AIDS is a very important part of the plot, but it was impossible to write a book that is set in the 1990s um, that centers a lot of gay men and their experiences and doesn't talk about AIDS. It's just impossible to do that. Um, and I also know, just felt like I had quite a lot in my mind about what that time would have been like because I've had many um, conversations with friends who are now in their some 50s, 60s, 70s who lived through that time in San Francisco and talk with me about it. Um, some specifically were conversations that I had for the writing of the book, but just you know talking about their lives um, where I felt like it would be it would be impossible to tell this story honestly and not include that. Um, but yes, it wasn't one of those things where I sat down and thought, okay, I'm going to write a book and I want AIDS to be a big part of the book. That wasn't a decision that I was making at the beginning. It's just something that naturally came out of selecting characters and selecting um, a time for the book to be set in. Mm. And I noticed in your acknowledgements, you thanked particular people that helped you with your research, not just the AIDS crisis, but also um, the architectural side of uh, mm. what Dell does to the house and how you unbuild something. And I know you were um, heavily inspired by, uh, I can't remember the, the man's name who wrote the novel that, or wrote the book, sorry, that you um, used for your research. Yes, it's Brad Guy. So I, I am not a handy person. You would not ask me to do anything, literally anything in your house. Um, so when I had to describe her unbuilding the house, I needed to get expert help on that. And so I did some research and I found um, a New York Times Magazine article by an, a writer called John Mualem, who interviewed a man, an architect called Brad Guy, who's a professor and a working architect. And Brad unbuilds buildings. And so for material reuse for recycling, essentially, um, he and his team will go to a house and they will completely dismantle it and they will preserve everything that is reusable and put it back in the ecosystem to be used again. And so they will um, preserve everything down to individual nails. So I emailed Brad and said, I'm interested in writing a book. I've just started on it, but I the problem is I don't know anything about architecture or building or houses. Um, can you help me? And he talked to me, I think we had two conversations, probably about an hour and a half of chatting. And then I also bought his book, which is incredibly helpful um, as a person who doesn't have that background to be able to look at pictures and see what was actually happening in a house at a certain stage of unbuilding was really, really helpful. So that was, yeah, very important and helpful in, in developing the narrative. How do you decide then what to include and what to leave out? Because I imagine that someone like that, who's an expert in their field, gives you way too much information and you're then kind of picking through it, deciding which bits are important to include and which bits make a good story? I think, yeah, and that there is that risk of boredom, isn't there? Um, there's a risk of someone spending a lot of time, Dell spends a lot of time by herself in the book. Um, and basically I led myself, I let myself be led by my own 
interest and energy. And when I felt like, you know what, this, I'm not interested in writing this anymore. Right? I feel a bit bored. I took that as a hint that a reader was likely to be bored as well. And so uh, um, there is, as you mentioned earlier, a bit of the book where Dell and her former roommate, Tim, get back together and they go work on this Christmas tree farm. That wasn't something that I planned. I thought Dell would go to her hometown and stay there and unbuild the house and maybe it would be successful, maybe it wouldn't, but I thought that she would stay in her town and not leave for a while. But I just got to the point where it felt like there needed to be a different tone of the writing. There needed to be uh, the fresh air that you get from moving locations. And she had been in the same location for a long time. So I just took her and a person she hadn't seen for a while to a different location. And that then became interesting for me to write again. That was a really fun section to write. And I hope um, it came through as a fun section to read, but it was really enjoyable. And then also she has to go back home and see how things have changed in the weeks, I think, since she left. Mm. Well, certainly it was one of my favorite sections. I wondered then if you were looking at it kind of almost with a step back and say, saying to yourself, okay, we need to break from that particular narrative and we need to move down somewhere else. Was that something you were able to see just through your own self-editing or was that something that came later when you were working on the book with your editor or were you able to kind of objectively look at it yourself? Uh, that I was objectively looking at myself. I would say that there, I, the book that you read is pretty close to a first draft. Um, there was one major change in the book, which is that I had more of Dell's original backstory with work at the beginning of the novel. Um, I asked a friend, a novelist, Maria Adelman, to read um, the beginning of the book. Maybe it was the first third or so. And she read it and said, I don't think you need all this backstory. I think she just needs to get to where she's going a lot faster because that's what the book is. It isn't about mm -hmm. her job or her experience as a cleaner, any of that. You could make that much, much shorter. And so I ended up lopping off the first 15,000 words or so um, and jumping right into action basically from the beginning of the book and that was the major outside comment that I got that changed how the book was structured but other than that it was really me as a as a writer making choices for myself. How do you feel about the idea of just losing 15,000 words like that? Was it, was it painful at the time or were you okay with it? So I would I have to say that I prefer to read really condensed, really efficient writing. I love short books. I love a novella. I, um, the book that I read most recently that I loved was Assembly by Natasha Brown, which is oh, just oh, yeah. so fantastic and just so condensed, um, so much pressure on every line. And I was shocked, horrified, and disgusted to see the proof of my book when it first came out, that it was so thick. I thought it was a much shorter book than it ended up being. And if I knew that it was going to be that long, then I probably would have cut off another 15,000 words, honestly, um, just because I love, I love a beautiful short book. I just think that there's something that is so magical about them. So that in that case, um, it didn't bother me at all to cut that off. And I would say in particular, um, having a reader who you really trust where Maria said this to me and I didn't question it and I didn't get upset about it because I trust her so much. I trust her taste and I think she's just a fantastic writer and someone I admire so much that it was, 
it was obvious that I was going to make that choice when she said, yeah, I think you should do this. Um, but I don't feel that way about everybody's feedback. And there is other feedback that I'm sure that I've gotten along the way that I thought, you know, that doesn't feel quite right or that um, doesn't allow me to achieve something that I wanted to do with this book that I probably, there are things that I probably rejected, but that was something that to me, that was an obvious yes. Mm. Do you think it's kind of instinctual? Do you think you have like a gut feeling when someone gives you feedback that you don't agree with? Because I think particularly when you're starting out writing, it's hard to know which advice to listen to and which to ignore. And I personally think I have a instinctive sense of when I'm going to ignore someone's advice or when I'm going to accept it. Or sometimes there is that niggling in between where you initially feel that 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 suggestion is wrong but then given time you can come around to the idea what is it like for you uh i feel that this is what this is making me think of is those tricky tricky workshop relationships that you have yeah. in any <laughs> programs where you are sometimes in a classroom with people you really love but you have very different points of view about how fiction works and what it should do. You have people that you absolutely wouldn't be friends with and do not get along with. And sometimes that can really affect how, whether you take their comments on board or not. If there's somebody that you just really, your personalities rub each other the wrong way. I think it's very difficult, or at least I find it very difficult to then listen to that person's feedback and think, oh, okay, yes, I should definitely do that. Um, so I, yeah, I do, I guess I do have an internal sense of what I'm trying to achieve. And I do um, a lot based on that internal sense and just the feeling of whether something feels right or it doesn't feel right. Um, but I don't think I got any major comments on this. Oh, actually, no, I can think of one. I think, yeah. So the book is written in the third person and there was a point near the beginning where I was in a city lit workshop and somebody said, you should make this into a first person and i just knew that that wasn't right and it actually was a person who was was a great reader very talented reader very talented writer but for whatever reason i thought of that and i i didn't have to spend much time thinking about it i just knew that it wasn't right and so i didn't do it and I, normally i might you know experiment try a chapter or something mm -hmm. but it just didn't feel right to me and i knew immediately it wasn't what i wanted to do and so i didn't do it for me a big thing about my book that I wanted to be there and that I was very important to me was this very dark sense of humor. And I believe that that sense of humor, what I was aiming for is more effective when there is a space between the character and the reader that I can achieve more effectively with third person. So when I'm writing in first person and there's less space between the reader and you're directly in that character's thoughts, um, I, I find it much trickier to create humor and comedy with language. And I think that when you have that, that sort of remove, um, I find it much easier to do and much more effective to, to hit that note of dark comedy. See, this is what I really like when I get to talk to writers and you get into the kind of nerdy nitty gritty of why we choose certain things and why we pick certain points of view. And that, that's the fun part for me because um sometimes it can just be a instinctive I'm picking this because it feels right and other times there's there's reason reasons behind it and I and I love that kind of nerdiness when it comes to writing um I want to move back to talking about your novel and particularly the setting because um you grew up in New England and this is set in New England but um I believe it's a is it a fictional town because 
um oh you maybe you've based it i think i read that you based it on somewhere but you don't reveal it right so you there's elements of kind of uh the world building or the, the setting building that you picked up from from living in new england exactly that so i um it was interesting to hear your interview about um sea women and making decisions about how imaginary the ireland should be and i think for me as a writer i wanted a sort of freedom that i felt i could get from not selecting a particular place where a person could say well that's not quite right or um you know the highway doesn't run in that direction or something like that um i so i didn't want to do that but i did want it to feel yeah i lived um my family moved to the town that i grew up in in connecticut in the 1600s and there is an unbroken line of hubbards living there since the 1600s so i <laughs> feel like i knew what the area that i was talking about um but no, I did. It, it's not at all like the town that I grew up in. It's a much smaller town. Um, I grew up in a small, a very small city, a city of maybe 30,000 people when I was there. Um, but I grew up at, at the very edge in a farming district that still, by the time when I was a small child, um, there were cows and horses and fields around where I was. And, and gradually that's disappeared and those things don't, don't exist there anymore. It's, it's a, um, I, I'd say a pretty straightforward suburb right now. Um, but I was sort of winding back the clock to that feeling of a rural area that is tipping into being a suburb, because I think also that's very interesting when when the developments go up. And in America, that's almost always cul-de-sacs. You have all of these roads that go nowhere um, and these houses that have these ridiculous names like the Cranberry Hills Estate or something like that. And there would be all of these houses in the same sort of muted, um, faded blue, faded red colors uh, with a ridiculous name and cul-de-sac on cul-de-sac. And that to me was a very interesting landscape of the mind. And it was something that I am interested in and wanted to write about. And how did you build up the kind of peripheral characters then? So the various characters we meet where she goes into the diner or she goes into the, the shop or how did you kind of build up those little peripheral characters that we don't necessarily meet all the time, but we meet every now and again? So I actually built a town on a piece of paper. I was thinking, um, basically i mentioned how i spoke with brad guy about the house so he suggested i said you know what i am a person that would benefit from actually looking at the house like picking a house and he sent me a database of old farmhouses in new england and i actually chose a house to be the house that this house is based on so i found i have a photo and i went and found it on google maps it still exists in this particular town that's sort of um it's on the border of Massachusetts and Vermont, um, pretty rural area still. And then I wrote down on a piece of paper and just sort of drew boxes of what the town would be like. So I knew that there was a river going through it. I knew that there would be a main street. I knew, um, started writing down what would be on the main street. So there would be a diner, there would be an Italian restaurant, there would be um, the estate agent slash realtor, we would call it in the United States. Um, but I, I, there would be a church, of course, there would be a few churches in this small town. Um, but once I knew what the buildings were and what the businesses were, then I could populate it with the people that would be in those buildings. So that's what I did. I knew that there would be a diner. I knew that that would be the cheap place where she could go in and get breakfast for $2.95, but there would have to be a person working there. And I wanted it to be the same person each time she went in. And so that's how that particular character came about. But in every case, it was sort of uh, making a logical decision about what the town looked like led me to understand who would be in the town. Mm. 
and we've got to talk about the uh, Murrow family because obviously they're Dell's relations, but they are, um, I guess, I, I felt that they were kind of very much steeped in ideas of like toxic masculinity. And that's how, mm. and ambition is the thing that kind of makes them into these horrid people essentially. So can you tell us a bit about them? Sure. So the the, the head of the Murrows is Adele's uncle, and he is Uncle Chuck. He has three sons and a wife who works with him at his company, and they are really successful by the standards of this town. And so they have vanity license plates. They have matching SUVs, um, and Adele really hates them. She finds them incredibly tasteless and beneath her in many ways. Um, but they have money and solidity, and they also back each other up as a family in a way that she doesn't have. So her parents have passed away. She just has this sort of ramshackle collection of friends who are, some of them don't live uh, where she lived anymore, sort of dispersed across the United States. Um, and the Moreaus actually really do stick up for each other. And they stick up for each other in ways that are kind of disgusting at times, but also they fundamentally feel um, committed to the success of the family unit in a way that is very business-like um, and it is a family business but also they clearly are willing to look past indiscretions among their family in a way that they are very judgmental about other people and the way that other people have failed them hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f- are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com ready to pop the question the jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Let's talk about your kind of journey to getting here then. So I want to know... First of all, at what point in your life did you want to become a writer or has it been something that's always been a dream of yours? 
I always wanted to be a writer. I was a reader from the very beginning. I um, was a person who would, if I called out sick from school, I would go to the library and spend time there. I love to read always. Um, and I, I just considered books really magical and transporting. And I loved how they made me feel. And I loved also, there are points of my life and my childhood when I wanted to be transported. And being able to do that with a book from the library was incredible um, to be able to create that um, sort of elevator to a different place for people to get onto and get off on a different floor and realize, oh, wow, it's just, it looks and smells and feels different here. That's amazing. Um, so it was something that I always wanted to do, really. And at what point did you start then pursuing it kind of seriously? Did you do, um, I think I read you um, did a creative writing degree. Um, and I know I, I saw an interview where you said that at one point you had sent out work to agents, but you'd heard kind of nothing back and then you'd kind of put it aside and I guess moved on with your life and done different things so what was your kind of like early venture into a writing career then? So I have always worked full time and I have pursued writing at the same time but not always it hasn't always had a prominent place in my life because sometimes I just simply needed to make money and and to pay bills. Um, like most Americans, I have very significant student loan debts. Um, I um, have worked in really um, sort of straightforward corporate jobs in project management, uh, managing designers, working in marketing, and at the same time would write short stories in the background. I never really got anywhere with writing short stories, but I took paid writing courses when I could. And so I took, um, I, my minor in college was in creative writing. Then I thought about doing MFA programs directly after university, but I didn't do that. I went off and I got a job. I worked for years and then I did um, a workshop at Provincetown Fine Arts Work Center with Elizabeth Strout. And this was right after her book, Amy and Isabel came out, which was a bestseller, but not certainly nothing to the level um, that Olive Kitteridge has been. She was, I think, a respected writer, but not an incredibly well-known, very famous, oh my God, Elizabeth Strout level of writer. Um, that was a great workshop to be part of. And then a few years after that, I took writing courses at the University of Virginia, and then I applied to University of East Anglia for their MA in fiction, and I did that. Then I went into full-time work again. I didn't write for a while because I had student loan debt to pay off. Um, and I ended up taking a course at City Lit in London that was, for me, a really transformational experience uh, that I can't recommend enough. I had a wonderful teacher named Jonathan Barnes and had absolutely exceptional classmates that I found um, so inspirational while I was working. And did you start writing housebreaking on your city lit course? I did. So <clears throat> I probably wrote, I will say, 20,000 words of housebreaking on the city lit course. Um, I was taking it at night. It was once a week. It was a, a setup like a traditional workshop. And it was maybe Tuesday night after work that I would go in. Um, and I did that for about six months. And I didn't write a huge amount because I was working full time. Um, and I was also expecting my first child. So I wasn't feeling great, to be honest with you. Um, but I, what I loved about that class and why it made such a big difference in my life is that I, I'm not sure what your experience. I think you went to Kent's MA program. 
Yeah, and I did uh, the Faber Academy after that. Faber. So <clears throat> kind of uh, quite a long time of intensive workshopping. <laughs> yeah. So I what I have found with sort of more formal academic workshops is that there certainly is a feeling to me, a, a strong feeling of competition. And I think that sometimes that probably feels good and sometimes it doesn't feel as good, but there are, you know, the highest mark of the year or um, certain scholarships that people come in with where all of their course fees are paid or there are prizes that are given out at graduation and everybody sort of knows who gets them. It was a funny thing when um, when I got to the end of my UEA program and there was months before you hear the results of turning in your dissertation. And suddenly one week I was getting emails from all these people I hadn't heard from in months. And I thought, what is why are people just suddenly emailing me and checking in? And I realized, oh, it's because some prize has been announced and only the person who got the prize knows that they've been awarded the prize. I wasn't awarded the prize, but suddenly getting these emails saying, oh, how are you doing? How are things? I realized, oh, those are people that are trying to get me to say whether I had won this prize or not. Um, but there, there was a bit of a feeling for me in lots of the paid courses that I've done, this feeling of prizes and scholarships hanging over the whole experience can feel like sitting down to a table with lots and lots of siblings and not having quite enough food on the table where people are fighting for scraps and they're eyeing how they're going to get to the last little bit that they want. And what happened to me at City Lit was I came in, I hadn't written for years. I thought, okay, I'd like to try writing something again. I feel like this is a dream that I've had all of my life. And I was 38 or 39 years old. And it felt like that dream was slipping away. And I didn't know how it would feel to be in a workshop, but I went and what I found was a community of people who were just extraordinarily talented writers, but also they had lived their lives. There were, there were lots of people who are retirement age, who had raised families, who had worked lots of jobs and retired from them. Um, writers who were in their 50s and 60s and 70s. I think that there was maybe a person in her 80s and they had prioritized lots of things in life and then decided this is my time i have devoted my life to other people and now this is my time and i'm going to write my book and they were there for the sheer enjoyment of writing and there was something about that that i just found really empowering and inspirational and i loved being around that energy and i found it deeply deeply motivating and um just it was just such a pleasure to be in an atmosphere like that and around people who held that attitude mm. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, um, I'm fortunate to have a group of people around me who I would say are kind of a very supportive group of writers. And, and But I think that kind of network and that sense of a group that you can trust and that you feel like they feel like we've said before, their feedback is valuable, um, but that they're not critiquing your work with an agenda. They're just doing it for the sheer love of writing and for mm. the love of I think for me, when I've been in workshops, I I love doing a workshop simply because I can see someone's talent and potential and I want them to be better. I want yes. the work to, to live up to its its promise and its premise. Um, so I think, yeah, it sounds like this group did that for you and that they were working towards kind of supporting you and lifting you so that your work could be the best it could be. I've, I felt that they were genuinely excited for me when I wrote something that they enjoyed. Mm. And that was that was a very freeing feeling and I and definitely reciprocated where I felt there are pieces of writing that I read in that workshop that I think about 
years later and want to know I want it published I want my copy I want it in hardcover and I want it signed um, because I can't live without it in my life any longer and I'm so excited and thrilled for these people to have their moment of finding an audience and that yeah that's how I feel about them and I think that that's how they feel about me as well mm. so at what point then when you were working on housebreaking did you think okay, this book has got potential. This is the, this is the book that's going to be worth pursuing, possibly the book that I'm going to send out to agents. What was it about this novel that you thought or you saw its potential? Was it just that you kind of were compelled to carry on? What, what was the feeling behind that? So I wrote most of the book while I was on maternity leave and I, I was making a really practical decision that when I my maternity leave ended and I was back at work full time, I managed a team of 14 people in an NHS hospital um, and had a one year old baby, I was not going to be able to write a book that was very um, yeah, so I was making a practical decision deciding, okay, this is my maternity leave and it's going to be really hard to try to turn around a draft of a book, but if I don't do it now, it will never get done and then I feel like this dream is gone and I have let it slip away and I would be so disappointed in myself. I would be so sad and I didn't want to feel sorry for myself and I didn't want my daughter to see me as a person who just let her dreams slip away in that manner. And so I just set myself hard deadlines. I would work three mornings a week and I wrote a complete draft in about six months. Um, most of what I had written at City Lit got tossed out was in that first group of writing that um, Maria had advised me to cut out correctly and I did. Um, but almost all of it was written during that maternity leave. And I wouldn't say that it, I knew the book would get an agent or would get an offer. I just knew that I I felt like it had the momentum for me to complete a draft and that was enough for me. I wanted to complete a draft and I did. Hmm. So when you were on maternity leave working on this first draft, obviously you had a, a kind of deadline because you knew, you know, you had a certain number of months. Um, but what was your writing process like where you were kind of three hours a day person, like, you know, five hour a day person? How did How did you work in that time? I worked about three hours a day um, and it changed because also um, the pandemic happened during my maternity leave. I was on maternity leave um, from 2019 through September of end of 2019 through September of 2020. Um, so at the beginning, I was hiring a babysitter and then I would go try to go and write at the British Library and that probably happened for about two months and then lockdown happened. Everything got shut down. I had just bought a membership to the British Library so I could go and write in their special little membership room and have unlimited coffees, which seemed like the most amazing thing if you're a parent of a very small baby and not sleeping through the night. Um, and then that evaporated. Um, but then I was writing, I shifted to writing on the weekends because that's when my husband could look, af could look after the baby and he was otherwise working full time. So um, yeah, during lockdown, it was just me and the baby hanging out. She would go for naps and I would push her and her stroller through a local park and I would think through plot points and sometimes make notes on my phone. I, I tried to set up writing so that when I sat down, I had a little, sometimes just a little scrap of an idea of what I'd be writing, but I wasn't sitting down having no idea of what I was going to write because that felt like wasted time. And I didn't, I knew that I didn't have any time. I didn't. And so 
I would try to leave myself a little note sometimes at the end of a chapter or just write a little note on my phone saying, okay, in this, in this next chapter, um, they show up at the Christmas tree farm and they don't really know what to do. And that would be enough for me to sit down and then write maybe 1500 words in three hours, um, to feel like I had a sense of momentum and that's all I wanted. I just wanted to keep the sense of momentum going. That was my really, my only goal on a day to day basis. And did you have much of a plan when you were writing this? Obviously, you'd planned kind of the day before what you were going to write the next time you sat down to write. But did you have like an overarching idea of, of your of your novel's kind of structure? Or I guess you knew, I suppose, what the end point would be. But did you have any idea of what the in-between would be? So I had a teacher at UVA called Henry Sutton, who's a crime writer. And he really strongly advised having a one-page plot summary of a book before you truly committed to the book to have an idea of what happened. So I had a very sketchy one page summary that would be interesting to go and look at now because I, I didn't really stick with it. I had ideas. So I knew that there was going to be a young woman. She was going to go back to her hometown and she was going to dismantle a house, but I didn't know if she would be successful at it. I didn't know if she would die trying. I didn't know if she would get angry and burn the whole thing down in the end. I didn't, I, I wanted to sort of organically move through the book. So it felt like every choice felt right to me. And I didn't want that to be determined by a summary that I wrote ages ago when everybody was totally different. So I, I had enough ideas written down in that summary that if I if I didn't know what to work on next, I could look at the summary and say, oh, okay, well, maybe this the next major beat in the book will be this, um, you know, uh, an argument that happens with this person. And then I could try to work towards that. But I didn't really try to make myself stick to anything that didn't feel right. Yeah, it sounds like you had kind of a a good feel of the story and the characters anyway so you were able to kind of go with it organically rather than having this kind of prescriptive this is what's happening in chapter eight this is what's happening in chapter 11 you know yeah I couldn't write like that no 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 <laughs> and I noticed in the in the back of your book you had a kind of list of books that you had enjoyed or um, were reading do you are you I mean I've, I, I think there are two camps of writers certainly that I've I've witnessed and that some writers when they're when they are working on a novel they read nothing and then there are other writers who read loads and I'm definitely the latter and I find that I cannot write unless I'm reading and I'm, I read books that I think are going to help me I read books that I think do something particularly well or I love the language are you a writer that reads a lot as you're writing I read all the time and I would be very unhappy not to be reading all the time. I love to be surprised by books. I love to pick up books that I um, don't know much about that aren't the big, you know, um, the ones that don't have the huge marketing spend behind them where it's the book that absolutely everybody, you know, gets served with Instagram ads every 30 seconds. I just like to be go into an, an independent bookstore and just pick something up or have something recommended by a staff member that they feel really passionate about and then read that and find beautiful language that is my just yeah it really puts a smile on my face and makes any day better to read a book that is fantastic and as we're on the topic of writing and where we get our thoughts from on our ideas and daydreams finally are you able to tell us if you're working on another book or tell us a little bit about what it's about I am working on something and I will say no more about it than <laughs> that. <laughs> 
Well, Colleen, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I've really enjoyed talking about housebreaking with you. This was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. And I um, hope we have a chance to speak again. That was Colleen Hubbard talking about her literary novel, Housebreaking, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop, hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it would be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.